Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me with freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you this week. We have not talked about football in a bit outside the picks on the podcast, but we are doing an NFL midseason report today. We're going to be joined by fan sites, NFL insider Matt Verderam. We're going to talk about the state of the locals, the big picture of the NFL, some storylines to watch as the season heads down the stretch run. Surprising we got this far without too many major issues from COVID, so we'll see where we are, where we're going. Also, going to do our Week 9 NFL picks. Giant fan Phil Fred is going to be here, legal correspondent. We're going to talk about Big Blue's loss to the Buccaneers on Monday night. All the fun stuff that came out of that game. Make some picks with Phil. Phil's also going to hang around. We're going to do a special election talk bit because, obviously, everybody's talking about the election and what happened in it. And we're going to sort of break down where it stands as of recording the podcast, what we learned, what this means. And it could also have some impact on sports itself. So we'll lay that out as well. But we'll get all started this week's opening tip where we're going to talk about the big news of Steve Cohen buying the New York Mets right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here. Opening tip on the podcast. And it's a very exciting time to be a Met fan because after a lot of agita, a lot of craziness, the sale of the Mets is officially in the books. And there are no more obligations here. No more craziness going on. And it's a good day to be a Met fan. Steve Cohen is finally taking over as the owner of this franchise. Meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Knocking those home runs over the wall. East side, west side, everybody's coming down to meet the M-E-T-S Mets of all right, and that's right. Steve Cohen here to buy the Mets. The sale was approved by the owners last Friday in a 26-4 vote. Mayor Bill de Blasio rubber-stamped it just minutes afterwards, and we know why he took so long. He didn't really want Cohen to get there. He's hoping the owners just voted down, and once they approved it, he said, okay, I'll be the hero. I'll stamp it and say, okay, now you can own the team. That's not important, though. The key here with the Mets They are now owned by the richest owner in Major League Baseball, who is a Mets fan, and he wants to win. He already has gotten off to a brilliant start with the fan base night, not being the Wilpons. And he got off to an even better start over the weekend on Sunday. He apparently is on Twitter, at Stephen A. Cohen 2 on Twitter. He tweets out on Sunday, he's like, the sale is going to go through, and we're going to close in 10 days. And he's reaching out to the fans, says... 
Tell me how you can improve the Met fan experience. What a concept that the owner is actually being transparent with his fans. We know, courtesy of the Athletics' Mark Craig, that Jeff Wilpon was on Twitter, but he was using burners and lurking to see what the state of the fandom was. But Steve Cohen's out here interacting with the public, which is pretty cool. And he's saying, you know what, Met fans, I'm here. Tell me how you want to make the situation better. And he's actually replying to fans. He's engaging in the conversation. It's a lot of fun. So now worthy things come out of that conversation. He said he wants to bring back Old Timers Day for the Mets. It's pretty cool because the Mets don't do enough to honor their history. He's made it clear in his conversation with the fans on Twitter that he wants to honor that history. He said that he wants to hire smart people. And he said clear that you hire them smarter than you. That's work for me in the hedge fund industry. And we know how much money he's made out of hedge funds. So he's applying that approach to baseball even better. And he made it clear he wants to build a winner. One fan said to him, hey, it's great. You know, let's try and, you know, consistently contend. He's like, no, 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 no. We need to raise the bar here. Just winning is not enough. We want to strive for excellence. And it's fantastic because the Mets fans have been used to winters of, we're going to check in on the big free agents. And, oh, my gosh, they want more than we're going to pay them. Oh, well, here's bargain bin A, B, and C to fill out the roster. And let's hope we win 84 games. If we're good, the deadline will add somebody. But if not, we can sell off. That's been the Met plan for about a decade since the Madoff scale you know, crippled the Wilpons. Now, the Mets are in arguably the catbird seat this winter because 29 out of 30 owners lost money this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. The one owner who did not is the guy who was not here yet. That's Steve Cohen with the Mets. He already has spent $2.4 billion on the franchise. And at that point, it's a sunk cost. You know what? Why not go ahead, throw more money on here, try and get the team better? And there are a lot of big names playing for the free agent market, the Mets could be in on any of them that they want. You could see George Springer being signed to play center field for the Mets next year. You could see JT Realmuto behind the plate. How about Trevor Bauer in the rotation behind Jacob DeGrom? All those things are possible now with Steve Cohen. None of them would have been realistic with the Wilpons on, on the board still. But we've also seen that the money situation for some of these teams is going to be really bad because good players are having reasonable options turned down because owners need to cut payroll. Brad Hand's $10 million option was declined by the teams who outright waived him, and nobody picked him up. Nobody. Charlie Morton on the Rays, the American League champions, had a $15 million option declined going to free agency. Colton Wong on the Cardinals, good defensive second baseman, was a, two, was a three win above replacement player in 2019. His option was declined. The market could be flooded with guys like that. Plus, the non-tender market in early December, there's going to be a lot of guys who are cut loose because teams feel they can just get cheaper at certain positions. That's a big advantage for the Mets because they're going to have cash to spend. They're going to have the opportunity to go up their roster with guys who are looking for jobs, and they have a lot of ways they can go. They can explore the trade market. Maybe the Indians don't want to pay Francisco Lindor $20 million next year. Maybe the Mets can call him up and say, hey, let's make a deal. Maybe they can sign George Springer and swing a trade for Lindor. That'd be even better. But they also have a chance here to build a really talented front office. And the Mets front office over the years has been really kind of sketchy at points. The Mets decided to hire a former agent, Brody Van Wagen, to run. He did some creative things. His approach to the draft was very interesting. But I think having a team of smart people in this office, will be huge. Sandy Olson will be able to handpick the guys he wants as team as team president, 
and he'll hire a baseball a president of baseball operations and a GM to work underneath him. They want to build bulk up the analytics department, which is one of the worst in baseball. They'll be one of the best. And a lot of these teams are letting some of these smart front office staffers go because they're trying to save a few bucks in the short term. And the Mets are going to be sitting here saying, you know what? You need a job? Come work for us. You want a job in the analytics department? Come here. You want to run performance staff? Run, come here. They will have lots of options to fill out their front office and accelerate that goal. They want to become the East Coast Dodgers. And the Dodgers, we know the first year that they bought the team, they missed the playoffs, but they won eight straight division titles, went to the World Series three times, won it this year. They could do anything they want this winter. They can go sign, I think my preferred plan right now is sign George Springer for center field, trade for Lindor, sign James McCann, sign Marcus Stroman. You could do that. You could trade for guys. You could get for, go for the free agent market. There's lots of things you can do. Now, let's be clear here. Just because Steve Cohen is here does not mean that they're going to sign every guy who hits the open market. The L.A. Dodgers don't do that. The Yankees don't do that. The days of teams dropping hundreds of millions of dollars and laying the top four guys in the market are over. But what they can do is strategically target their needs. Like the Yankees last winter dropped $324 million on Garrett Cole. The Dodgers made a trade for Mookie Betts signed for $365 million. The Mets can do that now. If the Mets decide that Francisco Lindor is their guy, they can go trade for him and sign him long-term. If they decide they want JT Ramuto to catch next year and help the whole pitching staff, they can go do that. If they think George Springer in center field is going to be a magic bullet for this team, they can go do that. This team can be good very quickly. That's a lot of fun for us Mets fans because... For far too often, we'd be on the fringe of this playoff situation. They only made the playoffs three times in 17 years that the Will Ponds fully owned the franchise. That ratio should go way up in the Steve Cohen era. That's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to die born the Mets. We're going to wait till the offseason preview for the Mets till later in this month because I want to get the lay of the land here, see what they're doing with the front office before we really look at what the outlook of the team will be. But up next, we're going to do our NFL midseason report with fan size Matt Verderam right after... This call from Sunday's Chiefs-Jets game, courtesy of Kevin Harlan and Trent Green. Yeah, First and ten. Blocked by Edward Zelayer on May, and Harry Lopes one in the end zone. He's got him. Flag throw. Meta. Catch by Robinson. Touchdown. Flag at the four. 26-yard touchdown pass as it stands now. That penalty flags against the Jets. And Mahomes has thrown four touchdown passes. 20 coming off the side over here. And sure enough, May comes off the side. Edwards Alaire comes over and picks it up and allows him time. As you just said, Kevin, four touchdown passes to four different receivers. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast doing our NFL midseason report. Join me today, Fan Science, NFL Insider, frequent guest of the podcast, Matt Verderan. Matt, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Michael. How are you doing? Doing pretty good, and I will say this is in spite of the fact that my Jets are terrible, and it's sort of a dual prong question I want to start with here. Do you think they're going 0-16, and how much longer do I have to suffer with Adam Gase? <laughs> I think you have to suffer with Adam Gase for eight more games. Okay, I feel more confident in that than anything else. I just don't think they're going to fire him at this point. I don't think there's a lot of reason to fire him. I mean, yes, he's been awful. You can certainly fire him for that reason. But I, I think if you're the Jets, if you're the organization, 
you're probably better off just letting him finish out the year. Maybe you win one game, two games, and move on, and then have Trevor Lawrence come into town in April. As far as going on 16, I don't think they're going to go on 16. I, I know they've been atrocious this year, uh, and, and teams have done it. Cleveland's done it. Detroit's done it. I, I just, I always err on the side of the NFL. You're going to get one game where the Jets play really well for them, and you're going to get some team that sleepwalks through the game. So I think the Jets will win a game. I think they'll find somewhere in there where they, they sneak the game out. All right. Well, the Giants already have a win, and right now New York football is not doing great. How much better are the Giants than the Jets right now? I don't think it's much. It's not much. I think the biggest defense, or the biggest difference is the defense, really. Uh, the, the Giants have been better defensively than I thought. You know, I, I really kind of panned them in the offseason. I, I didn't mind the Bradbury signing. I thought Blake Martinez was a sunken cost. Like, he wasn't great in Green Bay. He's been a lot better in New York. Played well. Um, I, think the, the, I think the defensive side of the ball, the Giants have a clear advantage. Offensively, the Giants are maybe a tick better because they have better weapons, but Jones has been awful. Jones makes way too many bad decisions. You watch that game on the night against Tampa. The Giants should have won the game. If Jones doesn't throw two just horrific hits, they win the game. He missed a couple throws, a wide-open touchdown, busted coverages. So, look, if they played each other at MetLife, I'd take the Giants in a, a one-score game. I don't think there's a huge disparity between them. Yeah, and obviously right now, both are front and center in the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes. So, if you were to handicap yep. it right now, who do you think is the favorite? Is it still the Jets or you think maybe that the Jaguars would sneak in there and steal them? The Jets, because they, they have no way. So, you know, these other teams are going to have to hope that the Jets win at least a game, maybe even get to two. And like I said, do I think the Jets will win once? Yeah, but I also think all these other teams are going to win at least one more game. Now, Jacksonville, the tank of Palooza is on here with Gardner Minshew getting benched, and they're going to Jake Luton. And this idea that, oh, well, we like Jake Luton. No, no you don't. You just don't want to win another game. So they're, they're looking at it going, well, we're either going to get Lawrence or Fields if we lose out in all likelihood, barring a miracle. Um, but, yeah, this gets to the favorite. I think right now you have to say they're the worst team. And so with eight games left, you know, there are some games that just clearly are going to lose. They just played their hardest game in year one with think. Uh, but there are other ones that are tough. Uh, I, if, if I were a betting man, yeah, the Jets are, are absolutely out in front of the horse. Yeah, they, I think that's good for me, but that's a January problem. I want to talk about the rest of the league. Actually, actually is worrying about this season. So my number one thing I took away from this weekend's games is what happened to Lamar Jackson? Because this is clearly not the same guy we saw last year. Yeah, you know, listen, I I thought Jackson, I wrote about this a little bit last year over fan side. Jackson deserves to be the MVP on It was phenomenal. But he did struggle at times throwing outside. And when they played Tennessee in the playoffs, that's how the Titans beat him. They really, they, they clogged up the middle, they jammed up the run game of run blitzes, and they said, look, you're going to beat us outside. They had good corners, they forced him to throw outside, and really up until you know, garbage time, he couldn't really do it. You've seen the same thing now this year. The Chiefs played them like that. They held them to 97 passing yards. The Steelers played them like that. Now, to be fair, the Ravens ran all over the Steelers. They outplayed Pittsburgh up and down the field in that game. The difference was Jackson, who threw two picks, a pick six. He had another interception, two fumbles in the red zone. You're just not going to win like that. 
And I, I do think, I'm not one for the hot take world that we live in, but there's something to be said now for Jackson against good teams. He does not play well against them. And you know, this is a game where Baltimore had Pittsburgh the way they wanted. Like, against Kansas City, they trailed the whole game, and that's how you want to play the Ravens. You want them to not be able to run the ball as much. Baltimore was up 10 points at halftime. Like, that's exactly how they want to play. In fact, the first time Jackson's ever lost having a halftime lead. And it didn't matter. They weren't able to hold on and win the game. So I, I do think with Jackson, well, teams have figured out, if you, have to, if you can take away Andrews and make him throw outside the numbers, he's in a lot of trouble. And the good teams have been able to execute those plans, and he's struggled. Yeah, and one of those good teams is the Steelers, who now have two back-to-back great wins, including the win over Tennessee the week before that. Yep. So do you think they actually can go undefeated? You think somebody's going to trip them up? Oh, they're not going to go undefeated. Like, I, I think Pittsburgh's really good. Um, and they do play a very easy schedule. But, no, they'll lose some games. I mean, look just even at, at where they are right now. Now, they're, they're 7 and 0. Give them all the credit in the world. They, they needed four turnovers to beat Baltimore. They, and they still almost lost. They had to come back in the fourth quarter at home against Houston. They almost blew a game to Jeff Driscoll, where Driscoll had the Broncos in the red zone at Pittsburgh. Uh, the Eagles mounted a comeback against them and almost beat them in, in Pittsburgh. Tennessee, if, if Gostowski hits a field goal, uh, you know, they, they go at least to overtime. We don't know how, of course, plays from there. But, no, Pittsburgh will lose some games. But I, I think Baltimore could beat them in Pittsburgh. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if Indy went into Pittsburgh and won uh, Week 16. They play at Cleveland Week 17. I think Pittsburgh wins. They match up well with them. But if Cleveland's playing for the playoffs in that game, do they muster up a win? I think Pittsburgh's going to lose a couple games. I, I think they're going to be at worst 13-3, maybe but 14-2. But they'll drop a few. It's just the nature of the NFL. They'll get banged up along the way. It just happens. Yeah, it does happen. And one thing I think it's interesting this year, it's something I didn't expect to happen. I feel like the Chiefs are a very under-the-radar 8-1 and team. So you feel like that everybody's kind of forgetting about the Chiefs and all the hubbub about some of these other hot teams? A little bit. I think it's just expected, right? Like, And I feel like the past ones are up for years on end where people would just kind of go, well, yeah, of course they're 8-1 in the past. Right? I mean, Kansas City, 7-1, you look at the schedule the rest of the way. I mean, they're at Tampa, they're at New Orleans. Other than that, they are going to be overwhelming favorites in every game they play. Um, they are at the Raiders. We're the only team to beat them. But um, they, they get the Raiders off the bye. So that, that's going to help them significantly. Look, I think that Kansas City, the undertold story with the Chiefs is the defense is really good. That is the biggest difference. You look at all these you know, DVOA statistics. Uh, you know, football athletes are another one called Dave. The Chiefs are a top 10 defense, and against the pass, they're top three in the league. They do just about everything well defensively, other than stop the run. They don't care if they stop the run because they score 30 some odd points a game. So, um, no, I think the Chiefs right now, if you said to me, who's your Super Bowl favorite, it's them. Uh, I, think the, I think the only team in the AFC that can challenge is Pittsburgh. And I think the Chiefs would beat Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh blitzes more than any team in football, and the Chiefs just destroy the blitz. So, I do think that there are teams that could beat them. But right now, to me, Kansas City is, is the best team in the NFL. Yeah, somebody who sat and watched them play basically uninterrupted on Sunday for three hours, I can attest to that. That, that defense is really, really good. They're just, you know, they're under the radar because they're so good offensively that everybody focuses on the home to Kelsey and Hill, and, and understandably, for sure. But their defense, between Jones and Clark, you got one of the best inside-outside candidates in the league up front. Matthews, an all-pro stud. Thornhill turned into a really good young safety. Thornton's kind of a jack of all trades. He's underrated. He's always around the football. Their corners are excellent. Breland's very good. Ward is decent. 
Well, Darius Sneed, who was playing lights out as a rookie, he broke his collarbone. He'd be back after the five. I source tells me that he's probably looking at about being on maybe another game or so. So they're going to get him back fairly soon. But the Chiefs just do a lot of things well. They're a fast athletic defense. And look, when you score 30 some odd points, if you're Steve Spagnuolo, you can take chances. You can be aggressive. Because if you get beat once or twice, you care. It's not going to cost you. Yeah, for sure. And let's go the other way. Let's go to some really, really bad football. So who do you think is going to win the slow-speed bumper car chases, the, the NFC East? Oh, my God. I mean, dignity lose, no matter who wins. But I'd say Philly. I said Philly before the year. So part of this is I'm sticking with them. But part of it is I just I can't see anybody else winning. New York is awful. Dallas is starting a Cooper Rush maybe this week quarterback like I don't know how you could pick them and their defense is awful the, the, the football team good defensively at times so you want to make the argument Rivera gets them going the second half of the year I mean, I'll hear that argument but I'm thinking I think Philly's going to be one of these teams they're going to win they're going to go like seven eight and one and you know they're going to make the playoffs and they'll get beat by 20 points by New Orleans or something I, I think that's probably how this goes uh, but I'll take something. Yeah, well, none of them are the best team in the NFC. Who is the best team in the NFC in your opinion? I feel like there's a lot of contenders in that top spot. I think it's Tampa. And I don't think there's a huge... I, I think the AFC gap's bigger. I, I think I would be surprised if the Chiefs don't go to the Super Bowl. Even if they've got to go to Pittsburgh in a playoff game. In this in this climate this year, who cares? You're not playing against 80,000 in the stands. Like, I don't think it really matters. Um, plus, Tampa's cold by the team. It wouldn't really make any difference to me. The NFC... Tampa's really good. Seattle can't stop a nosebleed, although getting Dunlap and now Adams coming back, that'll certainly help. But their offense is so good. And Wilson, Wilson's just having one of those years where everything's coming up eight. Everything. So I, I think it's between those two. I'm not totally counting out the Packers the same guy. Uh, the Packers, I am worried about them defensively. Mike Pettin's not a great defensive coordinator, and, and they're not particularly great at anything defensively. So I worry about them there. And the Saints, I just want to see what they're like with Thomas and Sanders for a stretch of time. Is Breeze watch? Is it because he doesn't have his guys? Right now, I think Tampa is 1A, Seattle's 1B, and then i probably go Green Bay to one. Yeah, it's not the right packing order to me. And I do want to talk about like uh, one, a surprise team here. I do think that like there are a lot of these teams like Miami, Arizona, that have been off the fast starts. But I think my hot take right now after eight weeks is I think the Dolphins could win that division. I don't really like Buffalo very much from what I've seen out of them. I don't hate it. I don't hate the take, Michael. I, I, think, it's, I think it's fair. I, my big concern is Tua. Like, if Tua's like he was against the Rams, they won't do anything. But if, he, if he's good, I'm with you. Because the Phil's got off the to a start like gangbusters. They're four and zero. Everybody's going crazy. Then they get blown out by Tennessee. The Chiefs handle them easily up in Buffalo. Like my concern with the Bills is Allen was always going to come back to Earth. Always. I don't care. People that said he was an MVP candidate before we turned to sing. That was never happening. And defensively, which is kind of a weird thing, because they were so good defensively. They're they're awful. So. Yeah, like I, I don't, I don't hate it. The only thing that makes me say I think Buffalo wins the division is they're already four and zero in the division, and they beat Miami on the road. So I'll take the Bills, but I, I don't dislike the take. Miami's got a shot. My hot take, and it's been my hot take since June. I think the Cardinals are good. They're not going to go to the Super Bowl or anything, 
But the Cardinals are going to make the playoffs. They are going to be a team that wins up 10 games or so. I think they got a lot of upside out there in the desert. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think it's easy to say, oh, the Cowboys most disappointing team in football is how they started, but I think the injury gets in there. Would you say the 49ers are a sleeper contender for that in terms of being a disappointing team? Yeah, I think like you said, you got to handicap it a little because it's disappointing to how hurt they are. I, I think there's underlying for the Niners because I don't think they're going to see Jimmy Garoppolo again the Niners uniform. I think he's done there. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I, I think you've got to take into account. Um, but they've been a lot of injuries. To me, it is Dallas, though. They've got to be the most disappointing. Da- Dallas is a disaster. And yeah, the injuries, but even, let's face it, and even before Prescott got hurt, they weren't exactly lighting the world on fire. So I, I think they're the, the most disappointing team by a mile. McCarthy, I don't think he's one and done, but I got to tell you, if this, if this goes like this the rest of the year, he might be. Yeah, Dak also has incredible leverage now for his contract. All he's doing now is just is hand Jerry Jones the tapes of what the Cowboys look like without him and say, this, this is why I'm getting paid what I want. Oh, he's getting paid. Oh, that, that's coming. That, he's he's going to get paid every single dime that he wants. Absolutely. And my last question here is obviously, like, we have the interesting situation of the MVP race because I feel like Russell Wilson's got off to such a hot start that I feel like it's his to lose. Is there anybody you think can catch him for the MVP? Or is this just Russell Wilson's award right now? Right now it's Wilson. But I think Mahomes is the one guy who can catch him. Mahomes now, 21 touchdowns, one pick. He's on pace 4,600-plus yards passing. Um. And let's, I mean, they're, they're the kind of a team he could rip off 20 touchdown passes in four weeks. I mean, they, you know, so I don't think the, I think Mahomes significantly closed the gap. Um, but, but yeah, Wilson's the guy. I mean, he's got 20 touchdown passes for seven weeks. He's been great. I would say Wilson clearly is number one. Mahomes is a reasonably close number two. And then I think there's a wide gap. Then I think you're into like Rogers, Brady. And I, I think those guys have a lot of work to do to get the conversation with Wilson. All right, that was Matt Verderam talking NFL this week. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Before I let you go, if you follow on social media, keep up with some of the stuff we're doing over at Fanside. Sure, yeah. So follow Fanside at first of all, okay? See my, Michael's great work and some of my reasonably decent work. Uh, you can follow me over on uh, Twitter at Matt Verderam, B-E-R-D-E-R-A-M-E. Check out the Stack in the Box podcast. Uh, my column, Stack in the Box, goes up every Monday. Try to touch on every team in the league. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Power rankings, quarterback rankings. Uh, you'll find it all on Fanside. All right, Matt. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. And there you have it. That was Matt Verderam doing our NFL midseason report here on the podcast. A lot of fun there. Be sure to check out Matt's work over at Fanside. I also throw up my plug in. I do some stuff on Fanside every week. I give you teens to watch on Upset Alert. I give you the NFL betting guide. And I give you my NFL best bets of the week. NFL, a lot of these do make their way into the NFL picks on the podcast. We're going to do those up next with Phil Froyetta right after this. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. NFL picks for week number nine coming up today. Joining me on the podcast he's gonna hang around for a bit after the picks to do some legal talk about the election break down some numbers but right now we're gonna talk giants our legal correspondent phil freyetta phil welcome back how are you hey mike uh doing well how are you doing pretty good and i have to say i watched the giant game monday night against tampa bay i feel like it's just a typical giant game you know the defense played well a couple of mistakes out of daniel jones am i reading anything different than what you've seen out of the giants all this year not not Terribly different. I think the defense is a little overrated. 
Uh, I, I don't mean they've they've certainly played hard. Uh, I, I don't think they've necessarily played well, uh, but but yeah, uh, that that's more or less what what we've seen from the Giants. They they've been in some games. Uh, I, I don't want to say all the games. I know a lot of Giants. Like, for instance, that game against Pittsburgh. I don't really think they were in it, but uh, but yeah, they they've been able to stick around and. Uh, they they can't get the job done, largely because they, you know, they don't have any talent. Uh, as I've said on this podcast many many times, they they just don't have talent, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, there's a lot of guy, a lot of names, but you know, I, I think we're at the point now where it's what is Evan Ingram, what is Sterling Shepard, what is Golden Tate at this point in his career. Uh, th- those guys aren't really making plays, and Daniel Jones. Uh, he he does not look like an NFL starting quarterback at, at this point. Uh, now I'll give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit. I guess it's only halfway into his second season in the league, but he certainly does not look like he's made any steps forward. Yeah, I and think, maybe even maybe even regressed. Yeah, I think I'm with you on Daniel Jones because I've been watching him close lately. Because the thing that scares you about Daniel Jones, obviously last year you had a big year with had all the turnovers. The turnovers have not gone away this year. In fact, they've gotten worse. And you saw some very questionable decision-making on Monday night where two plays, he did not stay on the right read with Darius Slayton, who beat his man, would have been wide open for a walk-in touchdown. Instead, walked back around, threw into double covers, threw an interception. Stuff like that is makes you very concerned about Daniel Jones. Yeah, uh, those are the kind of things that you see from Daniel Jones on uh, weekly basis the guy turns the ball over a lot and uh you're right he missed open throws um now look does he make some plays yeah he makes some plays uh he especially with his legs uh which we've seen he, he can he can run and but but the, i i just don't think that's enough for a starting quarterback in the nfl and it's certainly a franchise quarterback your, your franchise quarterback has to do more than make make some plays for you he needs to carry you basically that, that's the best way to say it. he's got to carry you on your on his back and uh and we're just not seeing that from daniel jones uh and and look it's 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 hard to uh feel optimistic about jones right now simply because he hasn't really shown you much this year as far as his ability to be a franchise quarterback and he wasn't projected to be a franchise quarterback by just about any other Scout or draft analyst that is out there. Uh, the Giants took him. It was considered a reach, and now you're kind of seeing why. Yeah, you are seeing why, and he's a big part of why they're one and seven. Somehow, still mathematically alive in the NFC East race because the division's so terrible. But they really have to find a way to sweep Washington this week if they want to do that. So, what do you think they have to do to beat Washington and get the sweep this week? I mean, look, uh, Washington is not a very good football team either. Yeah, no. by the fact that the Giants beat them. Um, so, what, what do the Giants need to do to beat Washington? I mean, that's a that's a hard question, Mike, because the way I see it, it's uh, it, that, those are two teams who don't really know how to win. It's it's who's who's gonna do just enough not to lose. Um, but you know, the Giants, when they're at their best, they they play adequate defense. And uh, 
don't turn the ball over. Jones just can't turn the ball over. Washington has problems scoring, so don't help them out. That, that would be my keys to the game. But again, I think it's more of a don't lose rather than how to win. Yeah, I think it's pretty much it. It's like, just don't turn the football over, I think, in my opinion. It's like it's, if you limit them and give them easy field position and give them opportunities on short fields, I think that's a recipe for the Giants to lose. I think if they can hold the football, they got a chance to steal that game. Yep, uh, I would agree with that. Um, that's, I think that's the key. And like I said, to me, it's more of a just don't lose type game. Uh, I don't think either of those teams really does anything to to win. Yeah, for sure. And we will get to the picks, which is why you're here this week. Alex Asano was here last week for Teen Challengers. He went one and two on the week. He had the Patriots getting four points against the Bills. They covered that one. They could one outright if Cam Newton doesn't fumble at the end of the game. He lost the Titans laying five and a half, and they got crushed by the Bengals. And he had the Rams laying four in Miami. I got to say, that was one of the stranger games of the week that they got blown out in Miami like that. Yeah, uh, that was that surprised me. But, uh, you know, I, I, they've had some games like that, though, I feel, with uh, under McVay. Yeah, they have. I, on the other hand, I went 2-1 and one on the week last week. I had the Chiefs laying a 19-and-a-half against my Jets. That was not even in doubt for a while. I had the Steelers getting 3-and-a-half against the Ravens. They won the game outright. I lost with the Saints. I had them laying the 4. They won by 3, so I did not cover. On the year, Team Challengers is 14-9-1. I am 17-7, and seven, so that's the situation right now. We're going to do some picks for week number 9. Let me get a set up right here. And Phil, as the guest, you are up first. Where are you going with your first pick? Uh, all right, Mike. So first pick, uh, I am going to... There's the music. Uh, first pick, give me the pass uh, against your Jets. Um, I don't have the line in front of me, but I think it was seven. That's correct. Uh, the last time we looked at it. Yeah. Look, uh, I don't have to tell you this. Your Jets are just, they're just, they're terrible. That's the only way to say it. They're, they're a very bad football team. I think New England needs a win here. They know they need a win here. So I think they come in and they blow you guys out pretty bad. Hey, I don't disagree with that logic. I mean, my strategy the last six weeks has been picked against the Jets. I've gone 5-1 and one with that. So I don't blame you at all for going that direction. They've, the Jets have only covered once all year. Where are you going with your next pick? Next pick, give me the. Yeah, I thought about this one a lot. I thought it was a tight one to pick, but I am going to go with uh, the Baltimore Ravens and laying the what are the two and a half? Is that the number that we yep. had? Yep. Yeah, laying the two and a half. Uh, Again, I, the Ravens, they have a lot of a lot of uh, controversy and drama around that team lately. Uh, so I, I just think they need a win. I think they can go and get a win. They haven't played as well as anybody expected they would this year, but there's still plenty of time to turn around. So Ravens, I'll lay the two and a half. I think they'll cover. Yeah, it's an easy one to lay because they just need a field goal to beat the Colts. The Colts have trouble scoring the football. It's going to be a good defensive struggle. I still like laying when you're getting less than a field goal here. So I trust the Ravens in that one. Where are you going with your final pick of the week? 
Final pick. Give me... Looking over the numbers again. I will take the Arizona Cardinals with my final pick. Uh, and what was that spread? I don't know. Was it four? Four and a half? I think it, yeah, three and a half right now. Three and a half right now, yeah. I'll take the Cardinals. Uh, again, the Cardinals have played really well this year. They've impressed everybody. Uh, and they're in a tight division hunt. I just think they go in and take care of business. I like Kyler Murray. Uh, you know, I'd bring him back to the, the Daniel Jones conversation. You just look at two polar opposites right there. Uh, one organization, the Cardinals, they take a guy like Kyler Murray, who's not a prototypical NFL quarterback, but they build a system for him and it's working versus the Giants who take a guy who kind of checks off all the boxes, but you know, just doesn't, he, he might look the part, but he doesn't play the part. And, and that's why I think you have an organization like the Cardinals on the up and up and an organization like the Giants who are just down, down, down. So give me the Cardinals. I'll lay the point. All right. Three favorites for Phil this week. I'm going the other way. I'm actually going three underdogs this week. Pick number one for me. I'm taking the Saints, getting five and a half on Sunday night against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is a game I feel like the Saints are kind of getting into a groove here. I know they should have covered against Chicago last week. They don't blow up a 10-point lead, but looks like Michael Thomas might be back this week. Maybe you get Emmanuel Sanders off the COVID list. This game is going to be a close game. The Buccaneers did not inspire a ton of confidence how they struggled to get put you guys away on Monday night. Five and a half is a big, big number. And New Orleans won this game big. These two teams met in week one. I get that the teams have played in different directions since then, but I'm getting a lot of points with the Saints here. So give me the five and a half with the Saints. Pick one. Uh, okay, uh, I can see that. Um, yeah, I mean, division games are tough, but I can definitely see that that pick there. Uh, so I can't kill you for that one. Uh, they, they could certainly cover division game. Who the hell knows? Yeah. Game number two, another division game, another dog here. It make, feels like it makes no sense why they're an underdog. I'm going to take them here. I'm going to take the Raiders getting a point and a half in Los Angeles against the Chargers because the Chargers, if we've seen one thing over the past couple weeks, that this team finds a way to blow games late. They had a big blown lead against Denver last Sunday. They were up big in the in the fourth quarter. Denver comes back to win. The Raiders coming off a very nice road win last week. They beat the Browns in Cleveland, dominated defensively. They're getting a point and a half here. I think it's a great chance the Raiders win this game outright. It's a big game for their playoff chances here. So give me the Raiders getting the point and a half pick two. Uh, yeah, the Raiders are an interesting team, right? They're, they're on the border. They're, they, you can't really tell if if they're ready yet, uh, but this is this is a big opportunity for them to show people that that uh, they're they're for real. And sure, they, I I can see them going into the start uh, down there and beating the Chargers. Definitely. All right, that's game number two. Game number three. My last underdog of the week. I'm taking the Chicago Bears on the on the road, getting six points against the Tennessee Titans. And this is. For me, a sign of respect for the Bear defense, which keeps them in a lot of games. The Titan defense is not good. We saw Joe Burrow beat them up last week. They've had trouble in the last couple of weeks covering teams, and I just think six is too big with the Bears because their Bears find ways to stay in these games. They have been in a lot of close one-possession games. I'm getting almost a touchdown here with the Bears, and I think they'll find a way to keep it close. Tennessee has trouble stopping the run. Dan Montgomery be a big factor here. Give me the six with the Bears, my last pick of the week. Okay, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I picked that one. I, I like the Titans. I think the Titans are a pretty good football team. Uh, they're at home, but look, the Bears have a defense. That's going to be one of those 
sloppy physical football games. Uh, so I see the logic. I like the Titans in that one. I actually considered picking the Titans, but I thought the number was a little too big. So I see the Bears covering. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't pick him to win. I wouldn't do the money line or anything like that, but I could see him covering. All right, so reset the picks the week. Phil is laying the pa- seven points to the Patriots against the Jets. Seventh straight week on the podcast, somebody's picked against the Jets. The Cardinals laying three and a half in Arizona, again, Arizona against the Dolphins. The Ravens laying two and a half in Indianapolis against the Colts. On the other hand, I am taking three underdogs. I have the Saints getting five and a half in Tampa Bay on Sunday night. The Bears getting six in Tennessee against the Titans. And the Raiders... Getting a point and a half on the road against the Chargers. Those are your picks for week number nine here on the podcast. It's been a fun week doing picks, but we're going to crunch some more numbers just in a minute. We're going to talk about the election. And Phil, I think you and I have some interesting number crunching breakdown. Yeah, uh, so there's a, there's a lot with the election. Uh, we're recording on Wednesday, November 4 at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So, uh so we're still waiting to get numbers, uh, but right now, depending on what source you have, and uh, you know, some networks call um, call the races differently. But Biden's anywhere between two hundred and sixty-four electoral votes and two hundred and fifty-three, depending on what source. Uh, some are given in Arizona, some aren't. And uh, do you want to start there with Arizona? Yeah, we'll take a quick break. We're gonna we'll do that and come right back right after this. We are back. We are talking some numbers here from the presidential election. As of right now, the as Phil said in the last segment here, we are recording on Wednesday, November 4th, about 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. We do not have a winner yet. Current electoral count, according to CNN, Joe Biden, 253 electoral votes, Donald Trump, 213, a bunch of key states still not called yet, including Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia. And Phil, this has been a wild ride watching these last couple of days. Yeah, uh, so it, it's been a wild ride. Uh, and if you're a Biden supporter, you you may have been sick to your stomach uh, early last night on election night. But as the night got later and later, you, you started to see the path to victory. And if you're a Trump supporter, vice versa, you may have been ecstatic and then started to see. And what, what they've been calling it is a red mirage. Uh, which I think is a good term. And, and basically, we had an election here where uh, for pretty uh, the only time I know of in the country's history, at least uh, there were a bunch of voters who voted early or by mail. Um, I think it's going to turn out to be about half the vote, uh, maybe, maybe a third of the vote, but it's going to be a substantial portion. And uh, what that means is it takes longer to count, though. So as the and some states actually, like such as Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, don't even let you count them before election day. So what happens is that on election day, you get the in-person people who went to the polls on election day the old-fashioned way, and those numbers come in first. And given the current political climate and the way that the different parties and candidates treat uh, the pandemic. What ended up happening is Republican voters were far more likely to go and vote in person on election day and Democrats were more likely to use mail. So you got all these in-person votes first and it looked like Trump was off the huge margin. But when you studied the data closer, you saw that there were pathways for Biden. So for instance, in Michigan, 
Trump had a big lead, but the votes in Detroit hadn't come in yet. And Detroit, for people, I know this isn't a political podcast, so I'll give a little background. A city like Detroit, a county like Wayne County, where Detroit's located, that's going to go 80-20, 70-30 for the Democrat every year. So, the, and, and it's the biggest county in the state by far. So there's a lot of votes there, and they're going to go heavy for the Democrats. So when those come in, they, they made up the gap, and that's why Biden... Uh, earlier today, they called Michigan for him and they called Wisconsin for him. But when you went to bed last night, it looked like those states were big Trump blowouts. That, that's what we mean by red mirage. Yeah, that's a good term to know the red mirage. And it was interesting because obviously, like, we're not going at this from a who should win, who will win situation. Here's what's going on with that. And just to clarify here, what's going on with this is like, we, Phil and I are not interested in sharing our personal political views here. We are more interested in looking at the numbers of this situation, seeing what we what we learned from the turnout, what we learned from our projections. And before this exercise began, when we had, before the voting, you and I each made an electoral map. We actually got with the exact same number here, which was, we were both off on. But I think the big surprise here is that we, we saw the turnout from Trump's side, the Republicans, on election day. Like, it's just skyrocketed. Yeah. Uh, Trump, Donald Trump, uh, Whatever you think of his rallies and uh, and and whether or not they were appropriate given the pandemic, uh, he managed to get his voters, who for the most part live in rural counties of these states, uh, such as Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and and uh, so on and so forth, Ohio, Georgia. Uh, they showed up. They went to the polls on the on election day and they voted, and it really closed the gap that looked like it was going to be substantial in some of those states they closed it they made them tight and uh and that's why as we're recording this thing we don't have a winner yeah because obviously like we saw some of these red counties like really the numbers came out and like we're looking at the at the overall tolls right now as a recording i mean both candidates are now past the all-time high for most votes for a single candidate in election joe biden currently is over 70 million donald trump's over 67 and that's something that's a little surprising because the national poll going into this said, oh, Joe Biden has like a five to eight percent lead. And I, I think it was up at one point fifty two to 40 in some national polls. And you're looking at this and you're like, it's not going to end up that way because I get it's going to stretch out once you have all these mailing votes counted. But it makes you curious, like where the miss is, is with constantly with the Trump side because they don't seem to get enough of supporters in these polls. Well, I think it's two things. One, uh, Donald Trump, like I was just saying, he has an uncanny ability to get uh, people who don't typically vote to show up at polls. And that is rural voters. They, 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 For instance, you go back to 2012 with Mitt Romney, that's why he lost. Those people stayed home. They didn't go vote for their, their Republican candidate. They stayed home. But Donald Trump, for whatever reason, has managed to get those people to show up, and it makes a big difference. So that's number one. But the, the second thing is, uh, and, and this is becoming clear now, pollsters have a problem polling Donald Trump. And I, I don't know exactly what it is, but most of the races on the down ballots this year, they've been pretty spot on on. In 2018, they were pretty spot on for the most part. But Donald Trump, the margins on him are just huge. Uh, so I'm not sure if it's that you know, they're not getting truthful responses from the respondents or, or maybe they're, they're excluding too many people who don't typically vote, who will go show up and vote for a Donald Trump. But whatever it is, the, the, 
this is two years in a row now that some of these polls, not nationally, the popular vote polls have been pretty accurate. I'm talking about within states. They've just been well off. Uh, and I'd point to Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania as the biggest example of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for me. I also think what should not, to not surprise in retrospect is that, like, the loyalty Trump has with his voters. And it's something that's very interesting going forward as a country because, like, it's not like over the four years, no matter what Donald Trump did, whether it was good or bad, his approval rating stayed around the same 43, 42, 44%. So he just had this very loyal base that, like, he could do whatever he wanted and they would always approve him. And you see that. That's going to be a big factor here. Assuming these numbers hold and Joe Biden does end up winning the election here, that percentage of Trump voters is going to have a big factor on what's going on down ballot in the next couple of years. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the exit polls and things of that sort, and you got to take those with a grain of salt, uh, especially this election where so many people voted earlier by now. But what you're seeing is that Donald Trump is making significant gains with gr- demographic groups that Democrats normally dominate in. So, for instance, uh, it appears that he made a significant gain with uh, African-American voters, particularly men. That's that's a, dem- a Democratic stronghold. It seems that he's gained it. Now, did he win those voters? No, not at all. He's still losing about 8 and 10. But Republicans typically lose about 9 and 10 of those voters. So to, to gain 10% is a tremendous gain. Uh, he also seemed to have gained some Latino men. Another big Democratic block, he seems to gain it. What he lost, interestingly, is he did worse this time around with white men than he did last time. So it's a very uh, interesting and difficult dynamic. The reason I exclude women, by the way, for is uh, just women predom- are strong against Trump. And, uh, you know, we can speculate why that is, but I think people know that Donald Trump, uh, not to get political, but he said some things that would upset women. So he doesn't poll well with women. But we're talking, focusing on men. He managed to pick up votes from Latino and black men while losing votes from white men this, this election, if, if the exit polls are right. And that's, that's super interesting. The other thing I'll point out is that he has more Republicans vote for him this time around than he did four years ago, which means that he was able to convince the, there was a, a fear in uh, the Republicans that some of those more moderate Republicans, uh, some of those Mitt Romney types would, would go against him uh, as Senator Romney has himself. He's, he's been an anti-Trump guy in the Senate, but that is not the case. Those voters lined up behind Trump. Yeah, that's true. And there was a lot of swell going on from the Lincoln Pride, particularly the days before the election, saying, oh, we're going to get like a lot of Republicans to flip. And like, I feel like the only contention that even did a little bit was like the college-educated men in the Republican side. I feel like all the rural like Republican voters stayed loyal. Yeah, uh, that, that's exactly what I had. The Lincoln Project... Looks like it was a tremendous failure today uh, because, as I said, he got more Republicans to vote for him than last time. So I the extent they were trying to convince Republican voters not to vote for the guy, seems like that didn't work. Yeah, I also think this is also speculation, but not based on any pure fact, but like the types of voters that Trump seems to rally to his cause. I feel like a lot of them sort of get fired up by A, the rallies, and B, this sort of idea when people – are telling them, oh, you should feel this way. And they say, no, I don't have to feel that way. I'm going to go to the poll and vote and show you that you're wrong. I feel like that's also a motivation for some of those people. 
Yeah, there, there's certainly an underdog mentality there. Uh, the, the sports podcast, all six, the sports analogies, but that's definitely an underdog mentality. Uh, we're going to show you, we're going to prove to the world that we can do this. And look, uh, yeah, I think you have to tip your cap in some respect that Donald Trump has managed to really expand the Republican Party to demographic areas that it has never, ever historically done well with, including rural white voters. Uh, and he even, as I mentioned earlier, did okay with Latino men and black men. So credit to Donald Trump for that, uh, to expand his party's voter base. Uh, but on the flip side, he did lose some votes. Uh, he, he really struggled in suburban counties uh, where obviously predominantly white, that's the way suburbs are, uh, but he, he, he struggled there uh, where some of the more educated and I guess uh, more affluent white voters just really turned on him. Uh, and, you know, we could speculate why that is. I think the pandemic probably had a lot to do with it, but, but that's where we are. So turning to, uh, I assume you want to turn to the, to the actual numbers of what we need to happen going forward. Yeah, we can go to the numbers for May because as of right now, it looks like Arizona is in, is the interesting state here at this point because the AP and Fox News called it last night for Joe Biden and infuriated Donald Trump. So we got the 3 a.m. Uh, press conference in the White House where he said, like, I won. They're trying to steal it from me. Mike Pence kind of pushed back a little bit and said, hey, they're still counting the votes. And he looks like he's if he gets that and he gets Nevada, that's all he needs to win the White House. But the numbers are closing fast for him in Pennsylvania. He's made up a ton of ground as we're recording. And good chance he does come back and take it, Joe Biden. And Georgia is very, very tight because... The margin earlier today on Wednesday was over 300,000 votes, and now it's down to about 39,000. Right. So so let's take them one by one. In Arizona, uh, by, like you said, Biden has a pretty healthy lead as of reporting. He's up about three percentage points. Uh, and Fox called it for him. The AP called it for him, and they stuck to their guns. Uh, right before we jumped on here, we got some results from Arizona, uh, and they narrowed the race not by a substantial margin but a little bit but the the bigger thing is are they an omen because uh the votes that came in went overwhelmingly for trump and there are apparently another dump coming around 12 12 30 a.m eastern time uh if those go overwhelmingly for trump too they may narrow the gap more but my understanding based on what i'm reading is that trump needs to win about 59 percent of the outstanding votes so it's it's a bit of an effort, Herculean effort for him, and I think that's why the AP and Fox have stuck to their guns and said we're calling this one for Biden. So, for purposes of this podcast, let's agree with the AP and Fox, and we'll give Biden Arizona. He won Arizona. That leaves him in a position where, as you said, all he has to do is win Nevada, and he is the president of the United States. Uh, Nevada is razor tight as of recording only about an 8,000 vote difference. However, the only votes outstanding, or the vast majority at least, are mail-in votes. That's what I understand. Mail-in votes in Clark County, County, which is where Las Vegas is, and is a Democratic county. Uh, Currently, as of recording, Biden is leading that county 55-45. So even if those went 50-50, he'd still win the election. Uh, he'd win Nevada and he'd win the election. So he's in a very, very strong position right now. 
to win the election. We're not going to know about Nevada until tomorrow. I think they're saying tomorrow in the afternoon at some time. The reason for that is Nevada is one of these states that accepts ballots that are postmarked but not received by election day. So they, those are trickling in, and the state has decided we'll let all those trickle in, and then we'll report uh, rather than report in piecemeal. I think a lot of people uh, were upset about that because I would have liked to get some more data for Nevada for tonight. But you know what's what's another day, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're going to wait another day. Uh, moving on to let's do Georgia first. Like you said, Georgia has narrowed substantially uh, as of recording. It's about a thirty-nine thousand vote lead for Trump. There are approximately, according to the Georgia Secretary of State, 120,000 ballots outstanding. And they are all mail-in ballots, and they're all in the Atlanta area. Strong Democratic area. Biden's winning that 70 to 80%. And more importantly for Biden, and disappointingly for Trump, uh, of mail-in voters in Georgia, as of recording, Biden was winning those at about a 75% clip. So, you know, do the math. Uh, if Biden takes two-thirds of those 120,000 votes, he's going to win the state of Georgia. It's going to be very, very close. Yeah, but uh, Before we go to Pennsylvania, I want to point out one other thing about Georgia last night. That, that caught my attention because I don't know if you're following the covers. The New York Times has had their upshot needles where they were sort of projecting the races. And they were the first one, I think, around midnight Eastern time on election night to shift it to the point where they gave Joe Biden a likely shot to win Georgia, which was stunning considering the tolls of the time, but they've been proven correct so far at their estimation. Yeah, and, and look, we'll see what happens with these 120,000 votes. Uh, we should have them at some point tonight. Uh, my, I heard the Georgia Secretary of State say, we're, we're going to get it done tonight. It may be in the wee hours of the night, but they're getting it done tonight. So we should have some results, so we should be able to wake up tomorrow morning and see who won the state of Georgia. Uh, if Trump loses Georgia, he's done. He can pack it up, go home. He has no chance. So it's not a state Biden needs to win. Like we just, like we said earlier, Biden wins this election if he wins Arizona and Nevada. It's over. But if he can get Georgia, that obviously gives him wiggle room in Arizona and Nevada. Uh, and it also gives him just, just basically a death blow to Trump. It would be a almost statistical impossibility for Trump to win at that point. Yeah, Pennsylvania, obviously, the biggest one of the red barrage states because last night Trump was up about nine percentage points when we were, when we were up there. It was like 54 to 45. Now the gap is narrowed about 1.9% with a lot of votes still coming in from those Democratic heavy counties like, like the uh, Philadelphia area, Allegheny County with Pittsburgh, some of those suburbs of those areas. And he's been cleaning up on those ballots, basically sh- – just cleaving thousands and thousands of votes off every every data drum. So the the math kind of points you to right now, like if the trend keeps going this way, that Pennsylvania will go to Joe Biden by Thursday night or Friday morning by about 100,000 votes. Yeah, if, if the math keeps up. Uh, and, and look, where Biden's got a big advantage is, like you said, Philadelphia. So I'm looking right now at the numbers. Biden's winning Philadelphia at an 80-20 clip and only 70% in. So of all those votes that are still outstanding, and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but because it keeps dwindling down because they're counting them slowly. But if they go 80-20 for Biden, he's got a very good chance to jump ahead of Trump and take the lead. But 
that said, uh, it, it's getting late early to use the Yogi. Yeah, wait. Um, yeah, I know Trump earlier today. We'll get some of his political maneuverings with this and try and, and raise chaos. But before we get to that, I want to touch on the Electoral College thing here because this there was this concern from the Democratic side, like Joe Biden will win the popular vote, which really is going to happen, but lose the Electoral College. If he had, if that did happen, and that's still possible as of recording, that that does happen. Like that would be the third time in about twenty years, and all three on the Republican side that somebody won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College. Do you think? As an institution, this is my personal thing. I think I'm curious about yours. Like, do you think the Electoral College has basically outgrown the country here that they should consider just going to a national popular vote in the future? So it's it's a tough question, and uh, and look, I think that it's certainly concerning when you have three of the past five elections, and assuming Trump wins this one uh, right now, it doesn't look like he's going to. But let's just assume he does. Uh, if you have three of the last five going for a Republican while losing the Electoral College, that is concerning. But on the flip side, if there's no Electoral College, you don't get the kind of turnout that we got this election in rural Ohio and rural Pennsylvania, because what's the point, right? If you're a Republican voter in that place, you know your candidate's not winning the national popular vote, so why are you bothering to go vote? Yeah. So that's the flip side of it. And what it, in it's a it's a bit of an issue because it also takes away the the power of the state. So I don't know. I kind of I kind of sit in the middle on that issue. I could see both sides of the argument. Um, uh, ultimately, the way that the country shapes out, and this is true in every state. I don't care if you live in a blue state or a red state. The major cities and then the surrounding suburbs blue, and everywhere else in the state is red as it can be, and and that's. That's how it works. That's how it works here in New York. That's how it works everywhere. So uh, it's, it's really just a matter of do the major cities have enough population to beat out the smaller rural counties? So here's an idea uh, that, that we can jump to. Maybe you want to jump to a system such as what Nebraska and Maine use, and they apportion their electoral votes by congressional district. That might be a more fair way to do it. Uh, so we're still, you know, we're, we're still uh, not doing it by popular vote, but at least now I have a reason to go out if I live in the rural con- congressional district of Ohio and cast my vote. But, but the state is still going to have a far greater number of congressional districts in their major population centers. Yeah, I think the one concern you have with that model is the whole gerrymandering thing where this, right now we're seeing this a bit with the census coming in and whoever wins state legislators can draw up congressional districts. And that's something where you could run into a problem where some one state just kind of redraws the map to give themselves more districts and more electoral votes. Yeah, it's, it's a concern. Uh, and and that's, a, but that's a concern in, in the House right now. Uh, you're seeing that in the House of Representatives uh, and about to see it again with a new census. So... Uh, definitely a concern, uh, but that—that I just think there are a lot of issues there to consider. Uh, the Electoral College, I know at first uh, uh, glance, a lot of listeners may be like, hey, that's, that's really silly. Why are we not giving it to the guy who got the most votes? But if you think about it, there they, it does serve a purpose. It keeps the states relevant. It keeps the rural parts of the states relevant. However, the country is reaching a point now where I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility that you can have a five percentage point 
win in the popular vote and still lose the electoral college. And that's, that's a bit concerning. It definitely is. And we'll get to the potential litigation stuff from this, this election. And there are some lawsuits potentially going in the works here in a bit, but I want to talk about the down ballot stuff. Obviously the Democrats held the house are holding the house projected, but they are losing a little bit off of their majority there. And, the Democrats did not gain the Senate. So even if Joe Biden wins, we'll have a split house, a split house of Congress here. So what do you think about like what we learned from that? It's, it's bad for the Democrats. Uh, look, the Democrats very well may take the white house, uh, either tonight or tomorrow or tomorrow. But even if they take the white house, this is not a celebratory election for them. They lost seats in the house. They should have, retaken the Senate based on the polling and they didn't. So I think the Democrats need to have a real uh, look themselves in the mirror and what do we want to do? Because uh, let's face it, if there was no COVID-19, if we held this election in November of 2019, Donald Trump would have been reelected in a landslide. So uh, the Democrats really need, need to figure out what the problem is. Uh, is, is it and, and and as I mentioned earlier, why are we losing votes on the margins with African-American and Latino communities? Uh, how do we get those guys back? So they got to figure that out. Uh, it's, it, there's a little bit of a civil war, so to speak, in the Democratic Party between the more traditional Democrats like Joe Biden and then some of the more progressives like AOC. Uh, and, you know, somebody is going to have to come out on top. Uh, but, but you do have to wonder when you see these results, what would happen if Bernie Sanders was the candidate today? Would Bernie Sanders be in this, would he have won Ohio? Would he have won Pennsylvania uh, more easily than the situation we're in now? Who knows? Uh, but, but that's, that's what the Democrats have to figure out going forward. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I want to jump back to the congressional district thing, just because there's sure. one thing that I think is interesting. The Nebraska, that one vote in the Nebraska congressional district, Joe Biden picked up one of the state's five votes because he won the congressional district, the uh, Omaha district. Yeah. That could prove huge in this election. Uh, because if that scenario plays out that we were talking about earlier, where he wins Arizona, he wins Nevada, and he loses everything else that's out there, he loses Pennsylvania, loses Georgia, loses North Carolina, he will win the election 270 to 268. So that one vote broke the tie for him in his favor, and tie goes to the tie goes to Trump uh, because it would go right to the Senate, and they would elect Donald Trump. So uh, I think it's what it is. So actually, that, it's that it goes to House delegations, and the House and Republicans have more. Right, House right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, sorry, I misspoke. Yes, you're correct. It goes to the House delegation, which the Republicans have more of. But either way, tie went to Trump. So that one vote in that congressional district was huge for Joe Biden to pick up. It puts them in a much better position to win tonight. Yeah, it definitely does. And I feel like there's also a little bit of a sort of, I want to say civil war, but I feel like there's also going to be a bit of reckoning for the Republican Party as a whole because now, especially if these numbers hold and Trump loses, like they have to decide, do we back Trump and some of his crazy like rhetoric about like not counting the votes in certain states and it's stolen from me and risk burning all of his voters or kind of, back up what he's saying to keep them in line and risk pissing off other people. Yeah, I think it's a tough call with there. So if you're the Republicans, you're sitting here and you're saying, look, uh, this guy has some political talent. Let, let's just 
call it like it is. He got these rural voters to the polls. He closed the gap with blacks and Latinos. That That is something that no Republican's been able to do for like 100 years, except Ronald Reagan, who won in some blowout elections. But other than that, nobody's been able to do it. So you got to tip your cap to him. But what did he cost us? He cost us the suburbs where Democrats have historically not dominated. They, they've been pretty 50-50, and now they've totally flipped. Uh, so, for instance, we're recording from Westchester County. Westchester County used to be a 50-50 county. Now it's a two-thirds, one-thirds. So, and people blame Donald Trump for that. So if you're the Republicans, I guess, I guess you're looking for your, your Barack Obama, I'll call it, that, that perfect uniting candidate who can come in and keep the gains that you got from Trump, but also bring back the people that you lost. Because maybe he, maybe he has some Trump ideas and some Trump policies, but he's not as crude. And uh, yeah, that's the right word for a crude as Donald Trump. I think his crudeness hurts him with more educated and affluent voters who are just, and I don't mean that in an offensive way. It's just a demographic term, but people with college education, they, they tend to be turned off by these all cap tweets that the election was rigged and things, things of that sort. They don't like it. They don't want that person to be their president. So can you find a candidate who can capture that rural charge that Trump had while regaining a little bit of that suburb? But, but either way, Mike, uh, we, we have to tell the listeners and these elections, 2016, this one, they've been neck and neck decided by a hair. Trump won Michigan by 10,000 votes last time. So those little, little margins, getting the suburban county to go 60-40 instead of 66-33, that is a big difference in winning these states, and, uh, and that's why this matters. Yeah, it definitely is, and I do also want to touch on a little bit of the litigation we've talked about. Obviously, you're a legal guy, so obviously right now, there's talk about getting a retirement in Wisconsin, though. They kind of backed off of that one a little bit because the odds of them overturning that big a margin, 20,000 votes, is slim. There have been talks about lawsuits in Michigan, lawsuits in Pennsylvania, and lawsuits in Georgia about stopping the vote count. Like, is there any legal base for anything he's trying to accomplish in the courts right now? So we'll start with the recount because that's the low-hanging fruit. State law provides if you're allowed to recount or not, it generally depends on how close it is. A 20,000 vote lead. I guess, I guess you'd say, why not? Right. Yeah. Why not recount it? It may be a win, but I could tell you that from elections past recounts typically result in a change of 500 votes at the most. So I don't think you're making up a 20,000 vote deficit by doing a recount, but Hey, it's his right. May as well exercise it. The lawsuits are a different story. So he's filed lawsuits in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and in Georgia. The Michigan and Pennsylvania lawsuits are one and the same, from what I understand. They are seeking to stop counting the ballots and allow somebody from the Trump campaign to observe and make sure it's not being done in a fraudulent manner, which is insane. Uh, that's the only word I can come up for it. I can't imagine there's a judge in this country who would grant such a request because granting such a request implies that the United States of America has rampant voter fraud going on across our country. 
and to be the global superpower of the world, you cannot have elections that are fraudulent. And you can't have anybody even thinking your elections are fraudulent. So I think those challenges go nowhere. They reek of desperation to me. Uh, and I, I just don't think, uh, frankly, I question why they filed them. The other challenge that's out there in Pennsylvania has been out there for a while now. Uh, Pennsylvania has an issue with ballots in Maryland ballots. And the issue is, do they need to be received by election day or postmarked by election day? So originally the law was they had to be received, but the Pennsylvania Supreme court held that in light of the pandemic, that was a violation of its state constitution that, uh, voters needed to be given the opportunity to vote by mail on election day, and it could be received up to three days later. So that's where we stand on that. The Trump campaign challenged that. They went to the United States Supreme Court and said, you have to stop this. It's a violation of federal law uh, and a violation of federal constitution that says that under the federal constitution, the state legislatures make election rules, not state courts. So their argument is the state Supreme Court can't do that. Uh, the United States Supreme Court said, look, uh, we're, we're on a 4-4. Before uh, Justice Barrett took the court, they said, we're, we're not going to stay any ruling. We'll just let it go forward. Uh, you can make your petition again. Now, they've set a deadline of tomorrow for the state to respond to the petition. So the case is going to get heard. However, what would moot the entire case and what I think everybody, including the Supreme Court, is hoping for, is that Pennsylvania just counts the votes that they've already received, the ones that they received on or before election day, and say Joe Biden won the state. doesn't matter about those other votes that trickle in afterwards. Because that moves the legal case. There's no legal challenge then, and then we can go our separate ways. Biden won Pennsylvania. But if you have a situation where Pennsylvania is neck and neck, those few votes that trickle in after election day but are postmarked by election day, they'll matter. So that's a, that's a big... Uh, big case potentially and the Supreme Court will decide it yeah I think for sure, for sure before we get to Georgia one I want to say also with that like there's also a situation here where like again if it comes down to we just if Joe Biden wins Arizona and Nevada that case means nothing because Trump could win those electoral votes and still lose yeah uh, that, that, that is that is true too uh, although still the Trump campaign would have some reason to do it because then they would say, hey, if we can get Pennsylvania solidified, all we got to do is flip one state and we win Maybe with a recount or something of that sort. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I, going on to Georgia, the Georgia lawsuit is really reached the desperation. Uh, the Georgia lawsuit alleges that Georgia has a rule that the mail-in ballots must be received by 7 p.m., local time on election day. That's the state law. Uh, so, you know, some people, listeners may agree with that, some may disagree, whatever, that's the law. There were allegedly a Republican poll observer claims that he saw 53, five, three ballots that had been received after 7 p.m. that got mixed in with the other one. And uh, so they're asking the courts to stop the counting and let them go in and figure out if there's been any other ballots mixed in. The Republican Secretary of State 
of Georgia has said that, look, that is baloney. Our elections are done fair and square. We lock the boxes at 7 o'clock. You can't even drop it in if you try because we lock it. So we'll see what goes there. But that, that sounds like desperation to me. I mean, 53 votes. Yeah, that's 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 it's, like, it's not it's not like oh we're counting a box of votes and here's about two thousand votes that could be used. It's fifty three. It's like the odds of the selection coming down to fifty three votes in Georgia seems very slim. Yeah, uh, very very slim. Yeah, and what's also we'll wrap this up here. We'll talk a little bit about some sports impact on this because obviously this is a sports podcast, and we are going to go on the assumption here that Joe Biden wins because we know what Donald Trump's impact on sports is based on some of his policies here. Let's go with the Joe Biden win in terms of a couple of things I want to touch base on here. Hang on, Mike. I got to I got to cut you off because uh, there's some new numbers that just came out on Pennsylvania. Uh, some math that I just saw. So let me just throw that out there and then we'll go to the sports. Uh, right now, Trump has a one hundred ninety five thousand vote lead approximately. There are about eight hundred and fifty five votes outstanding, eight hundred fifty five thousand. Biden needs to win those 61-39 in order to win that state. Uh, Biden has won the last 600,000 ballots in the state by 50 points. So he's right so there. He's right there. He's well, well above where he needs to be. Uh, it, it looks like he's going to win the state of Pennsylvania. We'll see. You never know. you got to count him. But, uh, but he looks to be in a very good position to win Pennsylvania. Yeah, he does. And we'll go to the sports impact now with Joe Biden presidency, because obviously we know, we know what Trump does. We're going to look at the at the couple of things here. It's number one. We talked about you and I talked about before the baseball, the whole idea of like if there is a state of emergency in this country, with the coronavirus by the time the next season rolls around. That's something you can see a possibility of Joe Biden enacting a state of emergency to try and get the virus under control. And you've mentioned before that Major League Baseball could, again, try and change their rules because they could invoke an active force majeure clause to renegotiate salaries in the CBA because of the pandemic. Is that my reading that correctly? Yeah. Uh, although I think it's less likely than when, when I last came on the podcast, just simply because I think that Joe Biden uh, recognizes from the campaign that any talk of lockdowns was like red alert. So uh, I'm not sure if he'd do it, but yes, if Joe Biden were to declare a national state of emergency, Major League Baseball would be within its contractual rights to say we have to renegotiate the salary or, uh, or we're not playing. Okay, so that's one thing. Number the, the, the more interesting one for the sports owners is the proposed tax law that Joe Biden is going to enact where he's going to tax the, the people making over $400,000 a year at a higher tax rate than they've seen before. And that's obviously all your sports owners. And we've seen that these owners around the leagues have had issues with money because of the pandemic and the Mets were just sold. The or the rumors the Orioles might get sold. Do you think that these new tax laws combined with the business laws could lead to more franchise sales? Yes. Although I don't think the tax laws are going to happen. And uh, there's a couple of reasons why I say that one, as we talked about, looks like the Republicans are going to hang on in the Senate. No way in the world, the Republican Senate's passing Joe Biden's tax law. So, that happens, you could forget it not happening at least for two years until the Senate goes up again. But two, I mean, how many elections now, Mike, have we had Democratic candidates telling you that I'm going to raise taxes on the rich and they don't do it? 
Barack Obama was the president for eight years, he issued, he passed some marginal, marginal tax hike on rich people. That was it. Uh, so, look, we'll see. I know Biden says he wants to do it, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen. If it does happen, though, could I see more sales? Absolutely. Uh, and, and look, let's call it as it is. Major League Baseball owners took a beating this year financially. At least, at least that's what they say. We'll, we'll see when they open the books up one day. Uh, but, but that's what they say, that they took a beating without having the gate revenues. Same is true in the NBA. Same is true in the NHL. And same is true in the NFL. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I think owners will want to try and get out, especially if they're paying more in taxes. Um, and, and we could have more franchise sales. We're also going to have a very interesting free agency in Major League Baseball because who the hell knows how much money anybody has, except for except for your team. Steve Cohen's got all the money in the world, so he doesn't have to worry about it. But everybody else, who who knows? Yeah, that's true. And the, obviously, the one last thing is obviously this directly impacts the New York Jets because Woody Johnson is over over London as the U- U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom. Obviously, if Trump loses, he's coming back home. He's taking over the Jets again. Yeah, that, that's most likely. Yeah, ambassador positions, uh, especially to friendly allies like the United Kingdom. A lot of times they're just name only. Uh, you know, they're who donated a lot of money to my campaign. Okay, I'm going to give you a favor. I'll give you a cushy job to the ambassador to England. Uh, so Johnson with his own Woody Johnson, some rich guy who gave him a lot of money. Uh, so, yeah, he's coming back. I imagine Christopher Johnson's out. I don't know if that makes a difference to you as a Jet fan if you have Woody or Christopher. They both seem like they have no idea what they're doing, but uh, but that's where we are. Yeah, that's where we are. Phil, thanks for all the time. Today. I really appreciate it. It was a lot, we'll be a lot of fun to see, a lot of fun conversation. Good job breaking down the numbers, and we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, uh, we'll see. Uh, if, if, if I made a prediction right now, uh, my prediction is that I think Biden is going to win Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada, and win the election, at least electoral college-wise, by a pretty decent sum. Uh, but Hey, who, who knows? Uh, that's, I'm making that prediction as of 10:15 p.m. on uh, November 4th. You ask me in two hours, I may have very different numbers. Yeah, all right, Phil. Thanks again. Take care. All right, and that will do for this week's show. I want to thank my guest Matt Verderam from Fanside breaking down the NFL in midseason. A lot of fun that conversation with Matt. Definitely recommend checking that out again if you skip to the end of the podcast. Also want to thank Phil Freyetta for doing our NFL picks and taking a look at the state of the U.S. post-election. Some interesting stuff came out of the election in terms of results, and we took a look at that. That was a fun conversation on the show. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at how to fix the game of Big Brother in case CBS is listening. I don't know if they are, but if they are, just you can check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com for my ideas. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, our usual suspect, simply search for Just and the Suffering, your favorite podcatcher. You can find all our old episodes there, including our Halloween special over the weekend where we talked about the Mandalorian premiere. We talked about the Haunted Bly Matter. We talked to some Alan Austin's more Halloween suggestions. If you're still in that Halloween sphere, go check that out. You also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. I put up individual conversations from the podcast there. So my conversations with Matt and Phil are going to be up on that channel in just a bit. Leave your feedback and star ratings as well. They're very important. Help the show even better going forward. So if you don't mind doing that, that would be awesome. 
Help us grow the audience a bit. Get some new listeners. Keep the conversation going off the air. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that will do it for this week's podcast. Coming up next, we're going to do our Masters preview. That's right, the Masters November this year. Week 10 NFL picks with Dandy Martini, Mandalorian Episode 2, and more. Until I hope you have a better week than Chargers fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.